Welcome back for another episode of the Box Jumper Podcast. I'm your host, John St. Amand. This podcast is a deep dive into fitness, health, and nutrition from the perspective of a 40-something CrossFit athlete, trainer, and weightlifting coach in Bedford, Nova Scotia, Canada. Stay on top of the Box Jumper Podcast by following on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the handle at BoxJumperOver40. Uh, that's over four zero. And if you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, please subscribe or follow on your app to get the next episode of the podcast automatically as soon as it comes out. For this episode, I was joined by physiotherapist, CrossFit athlete, and L1 trainer, weightlifter, and mom, Brittany Klingman. Why do I give you all of those titles? Well, as it turns out, all of them have bearing on the discussion we had. I've known Brittany for a long time. We first met years ago now, at the gym at which we both trained in CrossFit and weightlifting. And her knowledge of, and I for, movement always impressed me. And then I found out why. Turns out, she's a physiotherapist. Go figure. And not long after that, she joined the family of practices run by Mike and Anita Connors, who you might remember from an episode about a year ago, um, in which they chatted with me about natural synergies between CrossFit physiotherapy and athletic therapy. Now, Brittany, in addition to being an experienced physiotherapist, has developed something of a specialty in helping her patients with dysfunction relating to the pelvic floor. Now, I'll admit, as a male CrossFit coach, I had been aware of this issue, but I can say it never before went much further than an awareness. Brittany conducted a few clinics at the gym focused on core health, and pelvic health was a part of that discussion. And I started to learn a little bit more when she started doing information sessions specifically on the pelvic floor as it relates to athletic movement, and in particular, CrossFit and weightlifting. But I will admit to having a certain hesitancy to ask much in the way of questions of Brittany on the subject. I thought, in error as it turns out, that this was mostly a female-focused issue, and that it was predominantly an issue for women that had had children. After one of Brittany's recent social media posts about one of her clinics focused on pelvic health for CrossFit, I decided to take the plunge and ask about it. And as it turns out, with the mic rolling, Brittany proceeded to educate me with a bit of Pelvic Floor 101. As a coach and an athlete, it was an eye-opener, and much overdue. I came away with a better understanding and appreciation of the pelvic floor and its relationship to how we move as people and as athletes. Now, as a CrossFitter, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable, and yet... Brittany made the discussion anything but. I will, however, in a first for this podcast, include a brief word of warning that our discussion does include some brief mention of anatomy that may or may not be suitable for younger listeners, so please be mindful of that before continuing on. With that out of the way, in 10 seconds, you can listen in as I go through Pelvic Floor 101 with physiotherapist, athlete, and educator, Brittany Klingman. I learned a lot, breaking down barriers along the way, and I'm sure you will too. Brittany Klingman, welcome to the Box Jumper Podcast. Hi, Jean. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I feel like I should have had you on the podcast before now um, on this topic. And admittedly, it's a topic that I'm not especially familiar with. Um, but, you know, a, as a coach in particular, and, and um, as a coach of master's athletes, um, for one thing, it, it's, a, it's a topic that I've had a uh, an awareness of, but not much of an understanding of. So what can you tell me about the pelvic floor? What, first of all, what is it? Oh, fantastic. Thanks. I'm very grateful to be here to be able to have an opportunity to help build awareness on this topic. Um, so great question to start. Like, I think the first thing, uh, first and foremost, a lot of people don't even understand uh, the basic anatomy of like, what is the pelvic floor? Right. Um, so the pelvic floor is a group of muscles that make up essentially the bowl of the pelvis. Okay. So they, they, they comprise the entire bottom part of our pelvis from tailbone um, around to our sit bones and then forward to our pubic bone. And the relative uh, like muscular anatomy is very similar in men uh, and women. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the external genitalia is different. Right. Um, and it has essentially five uh, functions. So 
musculoskeletal support. So that's a very important function when we consider uh, the role of those muscles in kind of the realm of CrossFit or weightlifting or barbell sports in general, um, because of their muscular attachments to the um, tailbone, the sacrum, um, it helps support the pelvis in general, and then um, the spine. It also controls bodily functions, so controls bowel and bladder. And I would say that's another important kind of facet in the world of CrossFit um, because we're exposing ourselves to greater pressures by the types of movements we're doing or the types of load we're moving. Right. Um, having adequate support uh, as far as closure of uh, the urethra or the anus is really important. Um, it plays a very important role in sexual function. So being able to achieve, uh, you know, erection or orgasm and also essentially you can think of it like a, a sump pump. So it, it helps with circulation and returning um, fluid back like into lymphatic circulation that's within the pelvis. Yeah, so that's that's kind of its role. Um, and then I, I think a often uh, misunderstood role of the pelvis is that, or the pelvic floor, is a lot of times people think that the muscles in and of themselves are um, work in unison or like work in independently of, of other things, but actually the pelvic floor muscles work as part of a team with this. Deep, deeper system. Um, I refer to it as like our, our deep canister. Mm-hmm. Um, and those groups of muscles essentially make up our, um, our diaphragm. So our main breathing mu- muscle that lives basically underneath the rib cage, the pelvic floor muscles make up the bottom. Um, we have a very deep abdominal muscle uh, called our transverse abdominis that essentially you can envision like our own personal back belt. Mm-hmm. It it attaches from the pelvis up to the ribs and into the like the fascia at the um, front of the abdominal wall, and then we have deep spinal muscles called our multifidi, and that system is like it's pretty cool actually, and and often why people don't un- know a lot about it is that in a good functioning system, um, its its role is essentially to to support. Our, our spine and our pelvis. So stability kind of being the key priority mm-hmm. and it's anticipatory and reflexive. So it will come on before we need it just as much as we need it to, uh, without us needing to even be conscious about that, <laughs> which is that's handy. <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. Um, except for what we're finding, especially in our kind of PT world is there, there are a lot of things that can turn that disrupt that system and and kind of turn off our access to it in that way and in those circumstances we need to kind of reconnect with that system um so scenarios that you might find um present themselves in the world of crossfit that would maybe indicate that system's not functioning well is if we're thinking about pelvic health uh, and CrossFit, the most common symptom would be like leaking in, in voluntary loss of urine mm-hmm. um, with with CrossFit skills, or it can also be um, incontinence of like gas, essentially. So leaking right. of gas or, or feces, which is even less talked about than leaking of urine. Mm-hmm. Um, also, so back pain can disrupt that system. Hip pain can disrupt that system. Um, pregnancy can disrupt that system. Um, so kind of a lot of different scenarios that we might not link to kind of the, the, the whole world of pelvic health, essentially. Right. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like when, when we're doing, you know, particularly with, with weight bearing movements, um, especially under a heavier load. Um, the analogy that we very often use when we're, when we're coaching is is to say, you know, it, you want a pressurized Coke can um, right. around your abdomen. And so mm-hmm. you think about the pressure of the sides of the can, but we rarely do we ever address the top and the bottom of the can. Right. Um, and it, it sounds to me like this is sort of the, the automatic uh, reflexive system that complements what we're consciously trying to brace with when we're mm-hmm. bearing a load. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, very good point. So in a, in a good functioning deep canister and like you've just said, John, about moving larger loads, we, the deep system in and of itself is not enough, right? Mm -hmm. So we do have to use breath manipulation. So if we take a big inhale and increase intra-abdominal pressure within that canister, it's like you said, pressurizing the can. If we then go and close off our throat, which is called a Valsalva maneuver, we can increase pressure further, which is great. Mm -hmm. If we then, if we are doing all those things well and using a a back belt, for example, or a weightlifting belt, Mm -hmm. we can then even increase that spinal stability and intra-abdominal pressure, an additional like 10 or 15%. And that's all awesome if we are using the deep system well first. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times, if we are not, and what we're doing is pressurizing the system more, then that can be one of those root causes for symptoms like leaking urine um, at that sticking point of a squat or with a deadlift or a sumo deadlift, for example, or receiving a heavy clean. Um, With men, maybe it's not leaking that is the path of their least resistance because we think of the external genitalia. The the P-tube for the women is short, Um, And so there's less distance for us to create compression around the urethra Mm -hmm. than for men. Um, The length of the urethra through the distance of the penis is much longer. And so there's a greater um, distance to create compression. And for men, it might be um, like losing gas. So having a toot at the bottom of squat, Mm -hmm. um, that would be a sign of that path of least resistance. Um, or a sign of pelvic floor, the pelvic floor has kind of reached its, its threshold, essentially. Right. Yeah. Now, those are, those are um, externally, well, externally observable, but, but really consciously observable symptoms of an issue with pelvic floor and pelvic floor control. What are some of the symptoms that may go uh, a little less noticed by an athlete? Mm-hmm that would give them a clue that there might be something else going on? Yeah, great, great question. So in general, why don't I run through a list of the most common symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction? Um, So leaking of urine, we discussed. Um, Even urgency, so, but potentially not leaking. So um, with some athletes, like they're doing, long sets of unbroken double unders and they realize like, Oh my goodness, like I have a sudden urge to pee. That can be a sign that your pelvic floor is kind of reaching its threshold or tolerance. That constant like nagging deep hip pain that you feel like there's this constant like stiffness or tightness that you always want to try and roll out or stretch out that you can't quite get to. Um, That can often be a sign that the pelvic floor is um, basically becoming a victim, um, because some of the deep muscles of the hip actually have fascial connections within the pelvic floor. Uh, there's also fascial connections within our hip flexor muscle or psoas. So for some people that feel like they're constantly tight in their psoas, that can be an indicator. Tailbone pain as well can be an indicator. Mm-hmm. Any feeling of heaviness or pressure at the pelvic floor region, particularly moving heavy loads or um, some of your higher impact type activities like box jumps or double unders would be a warning sign. Mm -hmm. Any notice of either pressure, discomfort, or actually visibly seeing coning or doming at our abdominal wall. So kind of along where the belly, anywhere from like the bottom of your rib cage, along the midline of the belly to the belly button and down to the pubic bone mm-hmm. um, is a sign actually not necessarily of pelvic floor, but that the abdominal wall is becoming the path of least resistance of pressure mismanagement. Right. I would say even subtle signs of athletes. The first thing that I have athletes do actually is 
just say, go away and watch your habits. Like just pay attention to what you do. Cause that's weird. A lot of times we just go to the gym, we look at the, the workout, there's a wad on the board and we just go, right? There's not a lot of conscious thought process to that. True. And bre- breath holding through activity is actually another indicator that we're not accessing that deep system very well. And whether the pelvic floor becomes the victim or something else, um, that altered breath mechanics or p- poor breathing efficiency would be would be also a kind of one of those subtle cues of like, huh, something's not quite right here. So how might their breathing differ if they've got if they're compensating for a weakness in the pelvic floor? Uh, breath. I would say breath holding. So, so like strenuously holding their breath all the way through a movement. Right. Yeah. So our body, if we think of that, like you described it, John, that pressurizing the can, pressurizing the can increases spinal stiffness. For those of us that don't have that deep system, the muscular system on well, on line well for managing that pressure, then just simply increasing the air into the system and not allowing it to move is also a, a way of increasing spinal stiffness. It's just not very efficient. Mm. So if you look at, um, I'm sure you've noticed athletes in your classes that maybe they're doing wall balls or they're doing push-ups and they do a handful and then have to stop because they're short of breath. I've probably fallen victim to that myself, at least on wall balls in particular, just because I do find them a little bit difficult on the return. More challenging. That's right. Yeah. So so even that is just, you know, it's, it's, it's a subtle indicator that we are not creating that deep system mm-hmm. uh, stiffness like we need in an efficient way. Right. So it's maybe getting the job done where you're not having any objective signs of musculoskeletal pain or pelvic floor troubles. But if we think of it in the realm of CrossFit athletes, it's also it's ultimately not very efficient <laughs> so for performance. we might notice this more often with um moderate or elevated loads but not maximal loads because i mean in a maximal load that some of the rules go out the window and people just wind up maintaining whatever stiffness they need to in order to finish if you're doing a one rep max you're just going to do whatever you need but if you're doing something like you know a set of 8 or a set of 10 or something along those lines then at at an appropriate loading, you should have mm-hmm. enough control that that you don't need to maintain that that maximal tension of your your breath hold in order to complete right. those movements. That's right. Yeah. So this is a great introduction into a concept actually that I'd love to expand on sure. if you'd entertain me. Yeah. So I like to think of that. So if we think of that deep canister again and spinal stiffness. And then concept of like load progression um, in the in the world of say CrossFit mm-hmm. in loads that would be say sixty to seventy percent or less of your one rep max, you should be able to breathe freely through the movement and create enough deep um, stability through that deep system. Right now, now for some, depending on in an elite athlete, what I should say. What I would say is that it should not matter when you're breathing during the ex- like through the movement, as long as you're just finding a rhythm that works for you. Right. Sometimes, depending on the uh, depending on the person and their ability and efficiency to access that deep system, we might use a little trick of of saying, "Why don't you exhale on the hard part of the movement?" Mm-hmm. The the um, management of pressure through that deep system, if we think of the role of the pelvic floor and the diaphragm and those deep belly muscles, if I inhale, what actually happens at my diaphragm is it pulls down and flattens out, which decreases the, the space, um, relative space between my rib cage and my pelvic floor. So I'm increasing pressure by inhaling. Mm-hmm. I'm increasing intra-abdominal pressure. If we think that deep systems main priority is pressure management in a great good functioning system, my pelvic floor muscles actually 
eccentrically lengthen, which means they kind of soften a little bit to accommodate to that pressure to maintain a relative balance of pressure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then if I exhale, what is happening is my diaphragm is recoiling back up, up under my ribs. So it's re, it's reducing intra-abdominal pressure. And it's a great time for my pelvic floor muscles to come on. Right. So it's a little trick to help people use that deep system efficiently. If I exhale on the hard part of the movement, I am helping my body naturally be able to use my pelvic floor and call on my deep abdominals. Right. Rather than holding the pelvic floor at bay with too much pressure. That's right. Yeah. So we work within this kind of rhythm of a core breath. That's kind of what I, my, how I describe it. So, so when, the grunts and groans coming out of the bottom of a squat serve a purpose. Yeah. Especially at heavier loads. Right. So when we think of, so we've talked about that, like less than say 70% of a one RM mm-hmm. and that'll vary a little bit depending on people's like exposure to fitness and experience with the sport. Right. Um, when we get up around that 70% or so, we actually do need more pressure in the system to create enough stiffness uh, for to be stable. Mm-hmm. So that's where that use of the Valsalva comes in. So actually in filling up with air, like you said, pressurize the system, close off the throat. So we create that pressurized system. If we're needing to use a Valsalva, we are thinking that we're moving loads around 70, 80%. So you're thinking that you're working with sets of like three to three reps or less kind of scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So you do have the opportunity to pressurize the system, call on the pelvic floor from the bottom up, use that transient breath hold, get through the movement. For some, I still might say that that may need additional help. If you're at your sticking point, start leaking air or start making noise, right? Right, Start grunting, groaning, growling using those vocalizations help us call on our pelvic floor, which is helping us create that spinal stiffness that we need. Now, from that point on, we may need an an extra little helping hand or performance boost for that last 10%. Say we're working with our 90%, 95% of our 1RM, 1RM attempts. Those types of athletes might then choose to be using a, a back, a weightlifting belt as a performance aid. And this part I find very important and kind of a little passion spiel for myself is that there the weightlifting belts are great if you're using them for the right purpose. Right. Uh, it, it's just I find that it's that differentiation that they are meant to be used as a performance aid, not a brace. Yeah, I find myself discouraging uh, their use more often than encouraging their use. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, getting athletes to recognize that, um, you know, they need they need to, to practice the movement, practice their core bracing before they even entertain the idea of using a brace. Because there's always a risk that they'll become far too dependent on their ability to press their abdominals into that a piece of resistance. It's it's just there to give them that additional bit of support. So I keep trying to tell athletes to hold off on introducing that to their workout regimen at all. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, if if you're bringing the athlete along gradually and and they're developing the skills and the strength and and an understanding of how to engage the appropriate muscles under load, then they won't wind up finding that they need that additional support until they start approaching those maximal loads, which they shouldn't entertain until they've got enough experience anyway. Exactly. No, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. I think that's what I, you know, aspire for all coaches to, to advocate for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if it's exactly that, that deep canister is meant to do that first 90% if we use it well. And in my training personally, I kind of, I've been dabbling and toying with that, this idea as I approach 85%, it's like, can I get my deep system to be more efficient? Can I, can it get me that little bit for, farther? Um, 
before I really need to go to the belt, right? And that's, yeah. that, that should be the goal. Well, it's, it's another muscular that- system that needs training. So that's the longer right. you can hold off on you, because the, the, the belt in a roundabout way is taking some of the dependency on the musculature away from managing itself because it now has this external device to press against in order to maintain that pressure. If it does, if it isn't there, then it's forced to do the work itself. And that might mean that you can't go to the same percentages, or maybe you can gradually build to those same percentages, even without the assistance of a belt. And I would, I would argue, I would argue that point just from the the theory of it, mm-hmm. what I would, what I would watch Jean, and this is what I observe in the gym is that I find oftentimes when people put the belt on their strategy for bracing changes and potentially that is the difference for people mm. In theory, your bracing strategy, your foundational bracing strategy should not change. Right. The added resistance of the belt, because you are bracing up against that firm material, whether it's a a leather belt or a cloth belt, whatever Mm -hmm. you're using, that is the only thing that should be adding that additional 10% of, of pressure to the system. Right. So, so I do find people get the belt on and all of a sudden that really nice bracing strategy that they had been using up until that point gets tossed out the window and they think all they need to do is like bear down into this belt, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, and then really they're, then they're dealing with a less efficient system. So that's, that's just, that's a caveat. Like, I don't, I don't know if that's a hundred percent true for everyone, but it's my personal observation. Uh, yeah. I, and I, I would say that I, I've definitely seen, um, people's, um, their, their posture changes ever so slightly sometimes with the belt, mm-hmm. not in every case, but you can certainly see that, the, that they're approaching the movement just slightly differently. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if it really was just there as an aid, then you would think that their movement would stay exactly the same and they would just have a, a better ability to brace. Um, but if you do see a, a change in how they're standing, how they're breathing, then it, it could mean that the, the brace is doing something differently than they would be doing without the brace. Exactly. Yeah. So, so again, that's, I mean, I think first and foremost, if people as a general rule aren't at, aren't utilizing the belt until those higher loads anyways, then that's, you know, fantastic. Yeah. Um, I just generally discourage the use um, as a kind of go-to at your normal uh, you know, 50, 60% high rep type yeah. scenario. Yeah. When the loading is appropriate, it, it, it definitely shouldn't be needed. And the more you can practice without the belt, the better. Right. Yeah. Cause you need yeah, to train so those, those muscles to work together. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's where, um, those are the subtleties of pelvic floor and, you know, for myself, if I have a, an athlete come in to see me with concerns or struggles around, say, leaking with a heavy lift, for example, mm-hmm. um, obviously, I need to first and foremost, watch them do the thing, right? That's, right. I think that's one of our absolute um, gifts in working at YKP and having the opportunity to collaborate at Ironstone is we have the space to do so. So I think with pelvic health clients, there's there's a lot of either stigma or embarrassment or fear around the symptoms that they experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's not, and they're comfortable with those things, sometimes I deal with the other end of the spectrum where I feel like people are fearful to come to discuss the symptom because they don't want to have it taken from them. They're the thing that they love, right? Right. So, so you think about members in your gym and the passion that they they have for their sport. And a lot of times I have people come to see me that maybe they've even seen one or two other practitioners prior. Mm-hmm. And they were just told, don't, 
don't lift heavy things. Always breathe when you, I had a power lifter actually that had seen someone that was told, do not hold your breath during a lift. Mm. <laughs> and un- unfortunately, that's just in the concept of her sport. That's not realistic. Right. And we want to help kind of meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. So the first and most important thing for me when someone comes in and says, I leak doing this, or this is my problematic skill, it's like, go show me. Let, let's see it. Because right. a lot of times, there's a lot of coaching involved. And it's not just about um, kind of hyper-focusing on the pelvic floor. There's usually very ob- objective, observable things that are happening within the context of the movement that can be changed first. Hmm. Um, so I think then people are like, oh, really? I'm doing this, I'm doing that. Sometimes there's tweaks just within the technique that abolishes their symptoms or resolves their symptoms. And right. in and of itself, like that's that's wicked. Like that's, that's my goal for people, obviously. Um, and, you know, sometimes it might mean, hey, look, like right now, your pelvic floor is giving you the cue that it's kind of reached its tolerance. We need to make these subtle changes to what you're doing for the time being. And never with the ultimate goal of saying you're never getting back to doing double unders, for example, Mm -hmm. but having a period of time where we are taking a step back, making some subtle changes, still allowing them to be within the gym environment, doing the things that they love, movements that are extremely similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are acknowledging what their, I, I like to call it their symptom threshold is. Right. Um, and kind of navigating around that so that we can make the progress that we need to make and, and then getting them back to the things that they love. I'm keeping that co- conversation very general because it can vary depending on what's happening. Right. But I think in the context of CrossFit athletes in particular, it's a very important conversation to have because a lot of times they avoid seeking help because they don't want that thing. They don't want to be told to stop doing that thing. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, you know, I, I'd, I'd have to say off the top of my head in the last couple months, there have been a handful of athletes that we've literally made very subtle changes to what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it eliminated their symptoms. So well, I think certainly for, for CrossFit athletes, um, there, there is a, there's a noticeable advantage in being able to go see, um, whether it's a physiotherapist or a chiropractor or a massage therapist that have uh, a direct knowledge and understanding of CrossFit as a sport, um, and or our practitioners themselves, which just allows them to to understand the athlete maybe a little bit better. And, and I've certainly experienced that in my six years of doing CrossFit. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's I've gone to par- practitioners that uh, don't have any direct knowledge or experience with CrossFit, uh, and I've had uh, experience with those that have. And mm-hmm. I, I can say, at least in my case, because, you know, I mean, it's, it's anecdotal evidence at best. Um, but I have found that, uh, treatment and follow-up and, um, you know, an understanding of why I do what I do and why I want to be in the gym is it's just there when I wind up going to see someone like you or Mike and Anita, um, practitioners that I, I know have a tremendous respect for the sport and understand um, what it is that I'm trying to do. Doesn't hurt that mm-hmm. you're all L1s yourselves too. So you, you <laughs> really, you really have the special sauce that it takes to really understand what it is that a CrossFit athlete is after. Um, but mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I've I've had some experience with some other practitioners that didn't have that uh, direct experience with CrossFit, but still understood what it was, what what the movements are, the functionality of it, um, and that makes a world of a difference to the kind of advice that I've managed to get out of, um, you know, healthcare practitioners in a variety of different areas. Um, so I I think it, it, it certainly helps that you understand the sport and you know what these movements are. I think if somebody walked into uh, another practitioner that has no experience and and doesn't know what a double under is, I I have Mm -hmm. to imagine it would be a little bit harder 
for them to understand what might be going on there, even if even with all the training that they have, um, because it would be just an unfamiliar movement. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I, I think that they're, you know, in the in the context of physiotherapy in particular, like I'll I'll speak to to our profession. Mm-hmm. You know, in theory, we are meant to be movement experts. Um, we could probably break down the biomechanics of a movement if we understood what was happening at a skill. Mm-hmm. But I would I would argue, I would agree with your point, John, is sometimes it's there is that difference in doing, right? So yeah. I'll use myself as an example, actually. Um, I, every day <laughs> that I work with my clients, and in particular, one of my passion areas is, is pregnancy and postpartum. So really helping that, that postpartum female that had just given birth navigate those steps uh, on returning back to exercise safely. Mm-hmm. And every day I'll have the conversation of, you know, this is your deep canister and this is how we find it. And depending on where they're at, I always say like, we want to think of that system like a dial. So depending on what you're trying to do, we can call it on less, we can call it on more. Just the idea that abdominal loading, we should be able to access on a spectrum versus a light switch, right? So if we think of we probably, you can probably like think of a handful of athletes at your gym that you definitely know use a light switch approach to their bracing. Like regardless of what the thing is that they're doing or how much load they are moving, their approach to, you know, tensioning their abdominal canister is the same. And so I have this conversation and then I go into the gym myself and I'm training And I'll have my coach, Isaac Smith, um, you know, say, hey, like, we don't have to be like dialing up that to 100 every time. And so I myself am working through that process of trying to put it into practice every single day. I might have 75 kilos on the bar for a front squat and realize, oh, wow, like I'm, I'm bracing a nine out of 10 right now. Like, do I really need a nine out of 10 for 75 kilos? Mm. The next, you know, the next set, I might tinker with the idea of, it's like that Goldilocks principle, right? Like not too much, not too little, like you need just right. And that's a, that's a kind of a daily practice for me. So I think there's the value of practicing what you're trying to teach, because despite the fact that I know I advocate for the dial, I myself am struggling (laughs) with that, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, um, we're all we're all guilty of of maybe not following our own advice uh, at times, uh, and and you're right. I mean that that level of experimentation um, is an important part of that learning process. Feeling through um, what works, what doesn't. I mean, consciously being aware that uh, it doesn't need to be turned up to a hundred every time. Um, only goes so far until you actually put it into practice and you actually get to experiment with it a little bit and find out just what those thresholds are that still allows your form to stay completely 100% intact um, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, doesn't make you lightheaded and, you know, you're able to get through the workout without putting the barbell down and suddenly being massively out of breath because you've been holding your breath for, for 10 reps. You know, that experimentation is a huge part of the athlete's learning process. And so the more, the more they can do that, the better. And coaches, play a role in that too. Cause we, we have to be the one to let them know that because not everybody has, um, the bravery to experiment on their own. They, they need mm-hmm. to feel like they should have permission to do that experimentation. You know, we might tell them to do the breath hold in order to get them through the first few workouts so that they understand the role of breathing and bracing, but then we have mm-hmm. to coach them on the experimentation process as well. And, and, you know, that, that's something that we at the front of the room wind up having to make sure that we're doing. Otherwise they, they might not think to try that on their own. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's a, it's a fun concept to play with. Right. And that's where the, really the joy of sport comes in is when you co- are constantly like tinkering with it and, and, um, yeah, toying with that, like, 
really like does what does my body need of me right now and if the coaches can cue that then good on them that's amazing yeah especially since we know that you know we're we're not all built exactly the same way so you know we as coaches we try to provide the best kind of general middle of the road down the line advice right from the very beginning and then we work with the athletes one on one to tailor it to how they move their particular issues, whether they have a limitation, whether they have a particular strength, um, whether there's something that they can learn to do better. You know, these are all the things that we have to try to impart on the athletes and the athletes have to feel comfortable with a little bit of experimentation on their own as well. Yeah, that's right. That's brilliant. I mean, I think that's ultimately, um, I kind of love where this conversation today has taken us, Jean, in that really we're talking about the quality of athletic performance. And that is in essence, the, the role of the pelvic floor. <laughs> yeah. So we talk of the pelvic floor and of this group of muscles at the base of the pelvis, but really it is an, it, it functions as part of an integrated system. And without that system functioning well, it's going to ultimately impact our athletic performance. Yeah. And the athlete has a lot of different dials that they have to play with at the same time. So, you know, over time, they'll get better and better at at controlling those dials relative to one another. It just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of experimentation and a little bit of awareness of what systems are at play and when. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, having uh, knowledgeable coaches such as yourself that are um, open and willing to have conversation around perhaps symptoms or behaviors that would indicate that the pelvic floor might be a piece of someone's puzzle. Um, One thing that we didn't discuss kind of at the beginning, Jean, about symptoms when we think of them, Mm -hmm. um, behaviors (laughs) that I objectively see on a very regular basis in the context of a CrossFit class would be uh, the just-in-case pee, right? So the main wad is coming up, they're skipping in the wad. Uh, You probably have to program or plan to give five minutes before starting that because half of the room will, will likely leave in needing to go to the washroom. Yeah, it's definitely good to have quite a number of washrooms on hand for any given class because if if there is something like that that comes up, um, it's best that there isn't a line. Yeah, and I think it's just a. I think it's about you know sure like in the in the context of a of a class or a business, you mm-hmm. want to be able to accommodate to that, but also being able to have coaches that are comfortable with addressing the conversation that you notice that this is a behavior and, you know, just, just even like blanket saying, like if, if anyone struggles with these types of symptoms, there's something you can do about it. Cause I, I think a, a big thing that pains me as a pelvic health practitioner is that the, the stories that, that are cultural norms, um, relay to people as being normal, Mm -hmm. right? So if we think of some of these stories that people probably think of normal is, well, I'm, I'm older. So this is a normal byproduct of aging or I've had children. And so this is a normal byproduct of, of pregnancy and childbirth. And while those two specific scenarios may be common phases of life that increase the incidence of, of those types of difficulties occurring, mm-hmm. they're not normal. And there, there's help out there for you. Uh, yeah. It, it right? can be overcome so, like anything, but you know, there, there are solutions right. that are available and some of it just requires a little know-how and, and training and some help from a professional as well. Yeah. So that's why I think it's so great. You've asked me to come on here. Um, my big passion is just at least spreading awareness for individuals um, the number of people I've worked with that the first thing they tell me is, oh, my gosh, I just didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> I wish I knew this was a thing. Um, and so the more people like yourself, Jean, that I can speak to about the topic um, is going to benefit others. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've uh, like I said at the beginning, you know, I, I've kind of always had a loose awareness uh, of pelvic floor health as an issue. But never, never any kind of real understanding of what it would actually mean. 
Um, you know, I, I think the only other real, the only real exposure that I had to it particularly was just, you know, I, I, in addition to coaching regular classes, I have uh, a master's class that I coach. And so, uh, as a byproduct of the fact that everybody is over 35, um, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of the, bunch of the ladies have kids and they're a mm -hmm. little bit older. And so, um, you know, I, I just kind of have a, a checklist in my head of when I'm looking at the workouts that I've programmed, I know, okay, well, either we're going to be under under tension for a longer period of time here. So people looking ahead at the workout are going to be looking at that. And, and so I kind of, I mm -hmm. know um, certain things that I program that will probably elicit uh, a couple of folks to make sure that they hit the washroom before that com particular component of the workout. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I take no issue with it at all. I just, you know, understood that that was something that, that certain people in the class would need to do before particular types of movements coming up in the workout. But mm -hmm. I, I never really spent a lot of time understanding exactly what the mechanics are and, and the biomechanics of the body and how they relate to the need to go to the washroom before those movements. Um, right. So it's, it's good as particularly as coaches to have a, a better understanding so that, you know, we can be very mindful of it when it comes to um, time management of a class, um, being able to address questions if if they were to come up. I mean, I don't think a lot of athletes would necessarily, uh, the odd athlete might be comfortable approaching a coach to ask a question about it. Um, but at the very least, if, if we see something there, then, you know, quite a number of us know physiotherapists like yourself that specialize in these areas. And so mm -hmm. at the very least, we can tell them who they might want to talk to, to, um, to have a, a serious look at whether or not they've got a weakness in their pelvic floor that might be overcome with some work. Yeah. And, and interesting that you use the term weakness, so to speak. Um, because a lot of times I'll also see women who come to me that say, you know, my doctor told me to, do Kegels after. And I, I knew I just had, I just had a baby. And so my pelvic floor must be weak. Mm. And so I've been told to do Kegels and Kegels, what Kegels are, they are the contraction phase of a, of a pelvic floor of the pelvic floor muscles mm -hmm. named after a physician who decided to name that action. <laughs> <laughs> and so Often in the athletic population, so when we're thinking about CrossFit athletes, I'm actually seeing issues, uh, those symptoms that people come in um, to me for that we discussed at the beginning of the podcast are actually related to the pelvic floor muscles being overactive. So, oh, so too, not necessarily a, a not weakness, weak. maybe too strong. That's right. Too on. Mm. And, and they don't actually know how to relax those muscles. So it's, it's so, control, not strength. Right. Yes. So if we think about back at the beginning when we talked about the five functions of the pelvic floor mm -hmm. and musculoskeletal support being one of them. Now, depending on the skill, the pelvic floor muscles might need to respond. The pelvic floor is made up of fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles, mm -hmm. uh, fibers. And so we might need, it might be a coordination thing. So if you think of uh, double unders mm -hmm. and that role of the deep canister and every impact, those pelvic floor muscles need to respond to that impact by like absorbing that force, that grand reaction force right. and softening a little bit. And then when we're jumping off the ground again, calling them on. And that's not something that we can naturally reflexively make ourselves do. Mm. It's sure in a rehab model, I will retrain that pattern by a number of different strategies. But the pelvic floor muscles need to be able to either call, be very highly coordinated for that type of skill. Or they might need to be able to come on at a high at a high uh, contraction force, like mm -hmm. doing a one RM squat or a one RM clean attempt, for example. And so they just might not be being called on enough. They might not be actually 
reflexively lengthening enough. So I had an athlete recently that um, ground to overhead movement was her provocative activity. And it wasn't actually pushing them. It wasn't the pushing the, the weight up over her head. It the was the prior? receiving the, it was actually the receiving the bar, oh, the okay. re-racking. Yep. So if we think about that action, the pelvic floor needs to be able to lengthen mm-hmm. to soften that impact force. Right. And this, this particular individual happened to be very, very overactive. So the muscles were on when they needed to absorb that force. They didn't know how to let go to absorb that force. And so unfortunately the path of least resistance was the leaking, the bladder. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so uh, just to go back to that topic is, is a lot of women also function under the belief and I shouldn't say, I shouldn't, be gender specific here to women. This can be um, to transgendered or anyone with a uterus that may not identify as a woman, Mm -hmm. Um, but with a urethra that's short, that the, they can function under the notion that the pelvic floor is weak when actually it may be overactive and we need to learn to use the range of motion of the pelvic floor. Right. Um, And when we, we, it's easy for us to think about that when we injure any other muscle in the body, right? Mm. We think about like, oh, they injured their ACL. And to, to nearly everyone, it makes sense that when the knee is big and swollen, the first thing you start with is just like gently moving it, right? right? Yeah. Bending and straightening and allowing that joint to move through range. And yeah. the pelvic floor muscles are the same. They need to be able to move through range. It's just we don't know how to do that a lot of times. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Hmm. So, so again, another one for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's an endlessly fascinating topic because it, it's, I mean, it, it, it's so difficult to kind of put your finger on exactly what uh, an athlete's experience might be with it. I mean, it's, it's entirely different. Like you said, like when, when we sprain a sprain a wrist or twist mm-hmm. an ankle, I mean, we have this, um, this, body part that is readily visible that we can point to and say, I, I hurt this, or I know this needs to be rehabbed. Um, when the musculature is internal, it's definitely a little bit harder. Um, particularly when it's, um, when it manifests itself in different ways in, in every single athlete, um, based on, on their experience. I mean, when you start talking about hip pain being something that's related to the pelvic floor, um, you know, there's lots of athletes that experience hip pain. How do they discern, um, what it's related to? So, I mean, that's, that's when they need, um, the, the help of physiotherapists that have this experience because they're not going to get the likelihood is anyway, that, that the average CrossFit coach isn't going to be able to make those connections. That's, that's where your expertise absolutely comes in. Well, I, I, you know, I think I, I think you need to give yourself more credit too, in the sense that um, if my real passion here is just building awareness, mm-hmm. right? So if if coaches have the understanding or um, awareness of what things can go wrong, essentially, mm-hmm. or what are indicators that that system is not keeping up as it should, right? Then and breaking the stigma around conversation too, right? right. Like, especially yeah. in the realm of, cal- of pelvic health, it is a very easy topic to just notice, but not comment on. Mm. Yeah, true. And so I think if coaches are comfortable with, I think what you'd oddly find is, is often if it's a, it's a topic that people are willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Or at least be will certainly willing to receive information of, of where they could get more information on the topic. Right. About. Um, so, so breaking that stigma first and foremost, because more times than not, I know coaches are well aware of certain behaviors mm-hmm. that occur around certain workouts, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any idea that there was something that could be done about it. True. Um, so starting there and then certainly with, you know, in the realm of any CrossFit coach, like if, 
if you can't necessarily alter or coach the technique of a movement and someone's still having pain, then I would argue that, you know, that'd be a good time to refer to, you know, a PT or, or seek, seek guidance in that area. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's nice to have that. I mean, it's it, the, the same discussion that I had with Mike and Anita on the podcast about a year ago, that this, um, this idea of, uh, you know, a, a nice, uh, symbiotic handoff between, uh, the CrossFit coach and, and the physiotherapy world. Um, mm-hmm. if only because, you know, we're, we're going to wind up seeing that athlete that you're providing, uh, treatment for on a more regular basis than you will, because, you know, very often they're coming four or five days a week to the gym. They're not right. doing that at yeah. PT's office. So, um, you know, having, a, an awareness of the relationship, um, between that element of physical and athletic therapy and what they're doing in the gym is important. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a nice way to bridge the the relationships that the athlete winds up having in order to manage their, their physical activity. Exactly. Yeah. And that, and that's something that we find is unique with our practice mm-hmm. um, is I love the opportunity that I have um working within the context of our satellite clinic at Ironstone, for example, anytime that we have an Ironstone member um, come as a result of an injury, whether it's pelvic health or any musculoskeletal injury, Mm -hmm. we have an opportunity, obviously with the the, um, client's consent to collaborate with the coaches and it'll allow, it's just this really nice bridge in that we might communicate with them. This individual for the time being needs to modify this particular skill, mm-hmm. right? And these are great substitutions for it. So it, it takes the pressure off the coach too, to have to like, oh my gosh, like your shoulder hurts. Like what, what do I substitute right now? Right. Um, and it, it keeps the athlete in the game. Right, yeah. which is exactly what they want. Yeah, they oh yeah, want very to, much. <laughs> right, yeah. they they want to be there and doing the things that they love, and I think that's that's what I love about our role um, there is that we really help people keep moving, keep doing the things that they love, even despite having to. Um, you know, currently navigate a scenario that has them potentially temporarily unable to, to do certain skills. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. I, I, that, that's one of the things that I've really appreciated about, um, you know, working with Mike and Anita over the last few years is, is that handoff with, you know, certain athletes that have given them permission to, to, um, relay information to the coaches and the coaches having a really keen, like a real direct understanding coming from the physiotherapist of what the limitation is, what they Mm -hmm. feel the most appropriate scaling opportunities will be for that athlete to still strengthen the joint, strengthen the muscle, work around whatever injury or, or, or rehab that they're doing and still get the, the benefit of the workout, um, in, in a much more direct way than we would ever dream of if we were just doing it on our own and, and not having that conversation with the physiotherapist. So it makes a huge difference. And the athlete benefits from that because they go into it way more confident that they're taking the right path because they're not making those decisions themselves. They know that the coach and the physiotherapist are talking to one another. That's right. Yeah. Collaboration is key. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, Brittany, I, I can't thank you enough um, for joining me on the podcast. Um, th- this was a topic that was kind of long overdue. I think for all the same reasons that you cited, that not everybody is super comfortable uh, addressing the topic in the first place. Um, I, I was probably at least to a degree guilty of that myself. Um, you know, you and I have had many conversations at the gym. Um, mm-hmm. Never once have we done a deep dive on on what your specific area of specialty happens to be. Um, but, the, right. but more and more when I saw that you were really, um, developing this, this specialty further and, and delivering this information to other athletes, um, it just seemed like a, a really great fit. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have had you on the podcast, even if it was overdue. Oh, well, thank you, John. I, I really enjoyed our chat today. Awesome. Thanks, Brittany. Yeah, you're welcome. 
And that's time for this episode. All that's left is the M wrap-up. You can tell that Brittany is keen to dispel myths about pelvic health and make the subject matter as accessible as possible because, as I learned in my chat with her, and hopefully you picked up on this as well, it affects absolutely everyone and plays an integral role in how we move, much in the same way as the major muscle groups we more conventionally associate with our movement. And a little awareness can go a long way, particularly when some of the symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction can hide in plain sight as other tweaks and pains that we have that we chalk up to other things. Brittany posts on the subject fairly frequently on her social media channels, as well as on the channels for Young Kemp Physiotherapy and Beaverbank Physiotherapy, so I would encourage listeners to follow all of the above to learn more. Links are included in the show notes for this episode. That's it for now, but I actually have another episode already recorded that I'll be releasing not long after this one, so be sure to subscribe to get the next episode right away. If you like this episode, please share it or even send me an email at podcast at boxjumper.ca. Like I said at the top of the show, please follow me on social media at boxjumperover40 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And finally, be sure to add your email to the BoxJumper mailing list by visiting boxjumper.ca. Thanks for listening. Another episode of the Box Jumper podcast is on its way soon. Until then, stay healthy, wad happy, and wad often.